you're with us and staying with us, please turn to Matthew chapter 22. We've been going through Matthew's gospel for some time. We're nearing the end. We're in the, we're in the last quarter of the gospel. Home stretch here, ladies and gentlemen. This morning we are looking at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Very familiar, very significant passage of Scripture. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. If you were to randomly select a hundred people on the streets and ask them, what is the most important thing to Christians? What is a Christian's number one priority? What is the church all about? Making no consideration of whether you were asking people in the church or outside of the church, what kind of answers do you think you would get? I would be afraid to hear what kind of answers you would get from a lot of people. I imagine some would say that Christians are all about reading the Bible, or Christians' number one priority is stopping abortion, or stopping the liberal agenda, or stopping the conservative agenda, or Christians are all about having correct doctrine and theology and believing the right things. Christians are all about being better than other people. The life that God calls us to, a life of discipleship, a life of following Jesus is full of and lush, and filled with so many things that God has given us. And if you've never been in a position to to speak with someone who has never heard the Gospel, never encountered God's Word, and, and to see them come to faith and commit to following Jesus, if you've never been in that position, then perhaps you don't realize how overwhelming it can all be. All that God has said. All that He has commanded, all that we habitually do, all that seems so normal to us. Read the Bible. Pray. Give money. Love your enemies. Learn these doctrines. Don't believe those doctrines. Fellowship with these people, not with these people. Sing songs, but not those songs. Participate in corporate worship. Rest on the Sabbath, but not in some ways. Um, Abstain from evil things. Do good things. There are a million things that we are called to be and to know and to do. And it is frankly overwhelming. And it is not hard for us, even having been believers for many, many years, it is not hard to get lost, to get confused, or to focus on a few things that we like best or feel most comfortable with and miss the big picture. So what is the point? What is the Christian life all about? Why are we even here? That's the question that Jesus is answering in this passage. Of all the many things that God says and commands and teaches, what is the point? What's it all about? And what does that mean for us? 
The first thing that he tells us is that loving God takes an all or nothing love. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you've seen how different groups are trying to trap Jesus in his words, trying to discredit him with their arguments. And that's what's happening here. A Pharisee lawyer, and that word lawyer is not the same as we think of it. It means an expert in the law, specifically an expert in God's law. Someone who knew the 620-some commandments, knew them well, knew the commentaries on them. In verse 35, asks a question to test Jesus. And the question in verse 36 is this, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now this is something the Pharisees liked to do. They would uh, try to classify the many commandments of God, some of them being weightier and some of them being lighter, some of them being more significant and some being a little less significant. And, and even next week we're going to see that Jesus ends up criticizing the Pharisees, not for making that distinction, but for neglecting the truly weightier matters of the law for the sake of less important things. But the problem with this kind of classification that they would argue about was that if you picked one command or one group of commands to be the greatest and most important, they could argue that then you didn't care about the others. Oh, you think do not kill is the most important command. Well, then you must think it's okay to steal. Oh, you think that honor the Sabbath and the ritual purification laws are the most important. Well, then you must not think that it's important to honor your father and mother. It was really about argument. And Jesus knows this and he knows their hearts and he knows the law of God because he wrote it. And so he gives them the answer in verse 37 and 38. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus is quoting, mostly, the most common prayer in the Jewish tradition called the Shema, which is Hebrew for hear or listen, which was the first word of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Sounds like a good sermon outline, right? Heart, soul, might. What does each one mean? How do we apply it? Here's a nice illustration. But that's not what Scripture means in giving us those three categories. First of all, notice that, that Deuteronomy, if we can just flip back and look at that Deuteronomy line again, Jesus, uh, in verse 5, it says, heart, soul, and might. But Jesus says, with all your heart, soul, and mind. But then in Mark's version, Jesus says, heart, soul, mind, and strength. The point is not which aspects of our being are we supposed to love God with? And what does it mean to love God with each of those aspects? The point is, what are we other than those things? They are perspectives on the whole person. If you love something with all your mind or with all your soul, is there room for anything else? That's what Jesus is saying. The most important commandment is not give God a part of your income or God a part of your time one day out of seven, 10% out of 100, or give God part of your commitment or your obedience, a part of who you are. The most important commandment is to give Him everything, all that you are. You love God with an all or nothing love. The closest example I can think of is marriage, which is how God again and again describes the relationship that He has with His people. We are His bride. 
We are His beloved. And when our hearts commit to anything above Him, He calls it adultery. Can you imagine a couple getting married? And in their vows, as we're, as the, as we're all sitting and watching and, and hearing them take these vows and admiring the beauty of the ceremony and the, the sweetness of their smiles as they look at each other, and one of them says, I will love you as often as it is convenient for me. I will be faithful to you as long as there is nobody else I want more. I will give you whatever I don't spend on myself as long as we both shall live or until I get bored. I will love you with my heart, but not my body. Is anyone crying tears of joy at that wedding? No. Because that's not what that relationship is supposed to be like. God wants a total commitment of all that we are, which I think a lot of people would say is how they love Him. Because, well, we don't worship other religions, do we? I'm not partly a Christian and partly a Buddhist. Therefore, I love God with all my heart. Right? But let me ask, what, what is your basis for hope in the future? What do you look to to say, if this happens, all will be well. If I have this, if this comes through for me, if the next election turns the way I think, if the stock market takes the right kind of turn, if I can just be in a relationship with this person, if my kids are just on this track in life, then my future is set. What what is the example that you pattern your life after? What are you trying to imitate or emulate in, in how you live, how you dress, how you speak, how you spend? Love is not just a feeling that we have. Love is being obsessed with something. Where do you go to find your joy? What can you not live your life without? If there's anything that answers those questions, what is your hope? What is your joy? What is your example, your pattern? What is your obsession? If any, anything fills that blank other than God, then you do not love Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. The truth is none of us are capable of that. The Lord knows it. The Lord is gracious to us. He is patient with us. But if we expect to do what He wants us to do and live as He wants us to live, that, brothers and sisters, is the standard. Loving God is an all-or-nothing love. Now, no one asked Jesus what the second greatest commandment was. He offered that as a freebie in verse 39. He says, there's a second command that's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, that's, that's not something Jesus is making up. Just as the first commandment he quoted from Deuteronomy 6, this one he quotes from somewhere else. There's no truth to the idea that the Old Testament was about law, and then Jesus came in and started introducing the idea of love. He's quoting Leviticus 19. Leviticus, yes, Leviticus, which you've ever tried to do your year through the Bible journey. That's where we all stumble and fall once we get into mildew and mold and infectious skin diseases and things like that. That's Leviticus, you know, we're in like 12 through 18 there. And then we get to Leviticus 19 and hear what it says beginning in verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I am the Lord. I wonder if it wouldn't be wise to put those words over our computer screens or on our phone or anywhere that we would look before engaging in any sort of online conversation or any sort of conflict. We are called to love our neighbor. And in case you're like me and always look for a loophole in everything and you want to say, well, it says love your neighbor and it talks about your brother who is among you. He's talking about other believers, other people in the household of God. Who's my neighbor after all? Remember that that very question posed to Jesus gave us the parable of the Good Samaritan. The point of which was that our neighbor is anyone that we encounter, even your most despised enemy. And then further down in Leviticus 19, the law expands who this applies to. In Leviticus 19, verse 33, when a stranger, a stranger, an outsider, a foreigner, another person, sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. We're not just called to be lovey-dovey in the family and household of God. We are to love the stranger, the outsider, the sojourner as ourselves. Jesus goes on to expand it even further when He tells us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Pause and think for a moment. Think of the person you hate. Okay, okay. We don't hate. I want you to think about the person you can't stand to be in the same room as. The person you will find an excuse to avoid. The person whose calls you don't like to take. Now recognize that Jesus is saying, love that person. Showing the same grace, the same patience, the same indulgence, the same devotion, the same sacrifice that you show towards yourself. Just as you think of yourself in terms of your best days and lay aside your worst moments. You are called to think of the politicians, the business people, the neighbors, the co-workers that you despise with that same degree of grace. Love them as you love yourself. That is the radical message of Christ. Because God loves His enemies as we confessed this morning in our assurance of pardon. Even when we were His enemies, Christ died for us. God loves the undeserving. Sure, for a righteous person you might dare to die, but God dies for those who did not deserve it. And if we love Him, then we will love the things He loves. We imitate His love. Loving God means loving what He loves. That's why I think in this verse, Jesus sets up this idea by saying, if we look at verse 39 again, and a second is like it. The second command is like the first. Loving your neighbor as yourself is like loving God. I, I can't tell you how much that discovery changed my life about 20 years ago. In reading through that passage of Scripture in a book I'm going to quote from in a minute to see that Jesus says, the way you love me is like the way you love your neighbor. The two are equated. The Apostle John suggests that you can't, you cannot honestly love God if you're not loving your neighbor. In 1 John 4, 
If anyone says, I love God, and meanwhile hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. John says he's a liar. He's not just inadequate. He's not just immature. If you say you love God but are not expressing that love to others, you are, he says, a liar. The first person you're lying to is probably yourself. But preacher, how can that be? I am a good religious person. I am faithful in church. I am moral. I give. How can you say, I don't love God? Well, I'm not saying it. Jesus is. Jesus is telling us this. At the Last Supper, starting in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then a little further down in in chapter 15, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another in the way that I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Let's go over all that. To summarize, to love Jesus, to love God, he says the way you love him is to obey his commands. And the command that he zeroes in on and specifies is that we love one another with the same kind of love that he has shown us. A love that lays down your life. A love that gives everything a gracious love. This is one of the most important things that you need to know. We talk about loving God. And we do love God. I believe we do. I believe we have every intention of loving God. But what do we mean by that? Does that mean that we have strong feelings towards God? That we emote powerfully towards Him? That we like to sing about Him? We we like to think about Him? Jesus seems to say that there is more to loving God than that. I mentioned a little bit ago there was a book that, that shaped the way I think about this and the way I understood my entire Christian life. Pull me aside sometime and hear about the man I used to be. And even as a believer, the nickname that my Christian friends had for me, you would not believe it. But as I began to study what this meant, that the second command is like the first, and I cannot claim to love God if I'm not loving my brothers and sisters. There was a book I read that I highly recommend. Uh, It's called We Really Do Need Each Other. We Really Do Need Each Other. It's by a man named Reuben Welch. And he writes this. I think we have the quote on the screen. I really need to believe that God is not so much concerned that I emote towards Him, that I feel emotions towards Him, as He is that I act in love towards you and believe that He loves me. I think that God is more concerned that I believe He loves me than that I love Him. And that I express that trust in His love by deliberately and consciously loving my brothers and my sisters. God tells us that loving Him, which is the greatest commandment, is something we do. It's something we do not with religious activity. Not just with religious activity, I should say. It's not something we do just with with pious feelings. Not just with time or money spent at church. Loving God. Our highest duty is like the second command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So how do we love God? We love Him by acting in gracious, generous ways towards the people in our lives. 
There's a movie uh, a number of years ago called Pay It Forward. I don't know if some of you may have seen it. Uh, Kevin Spacey, Haley Joel Osment. There's a, it's a story of a young boy whose teacher gives his class an assignment, a third grade class, to come up with an idea that will change the world. Easy peasy, right? And, and what this one young boy realizes is something he can do is he sees a man in need. He sees a homeless man. And he gets an idea. And what he does for his project is he comes up with something called paying it forward. He helps this man. He, he provides for this man something that, that this man can't do for himself. And the man says, I can't pay you back. And he says, no, all you do is you pay it forward. Find three more people that you can do something for them that they can't do for themselves. And after you do that, ask them to pay it forward. It's a beautiful story of seeing the domino effect of how that man goes on to help someone, and then they help someone, they help someone. And I've, I've loved how that gives us a picture of what God calls us to do. He has loved us in mercy and in grace, and He's not said, you have to pay me back. And that's one way we can misunderstand this and say, I have to pay God back for His love, and to do so, I love other people. Now, that, that's not it. We, we pay forward the love that God has given us, and we show that love to others. That is how we love God. We pay it forward. This is, I, I suggest, a tremendous comfort for those of us, if you're like me, that feel the burden of never feeling like you've loved God enough. I don't feel the same emotions that I see others feel. I don't usually cry and worship and feel compelled to raise my hands. And I, I don't know if I'm loving God like I need to. I don't necessarily feel the warmth in my heart that I feel towards my kids or my wife? Am I then not loving God? Are my prayers sincere? Are my songs heartfelt? Do I really love God? But instead of turning your eyes inward to examine your deep motivation, Jesus says, this is how love for me works. And then He points you towards others. How can I love God the way He wants to be loved? The answer that God Himself gives is love my children. Love my people. Let the current of your heart move towards them. So what's it all about? Well, loving God is an all-or-nothing love. Loving God means loving what He loves. And lastly, He shows us that loving God is what His people are made to do. I want to look briefly at the last verse here, the comment that Jesus makes about how important these two commands are in verse 40. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. First of all, note that he says on these two commandments. You have to have both. You need both. It is insufficient to love God and not love others. We've already looked at that in 1 John and, and in the Gospel of John. But it is just as insufficient to believe that you can love others without loving God the way He, demand, he demands with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And that is a very popular modern heresy that it is simply enough that we are good to others and we love other people. We don't, it doesn't matter where our religious beliefs lie, faith or no faith. If we are good to others, if we love others, then we've done all that God asks. It doesn't matter what name we've done it under. But we've, we've loved others. But no, Jesus says you need both commandments on these two commandments. And the first is the most significant. He calls the first commandment great, meaning most important commandment. He also calls it the first commandment. Not that it was the first one given, 
Deuteronomy is way after a lot of other commands. It was not the first command given, but it was first in that it is primary. All others follow from this. The laws of God are not a list of moral advice. It's not a system of morality that can exist apart from God. You cannot have the law of God without God as Lord. You can't have biblical ethics without Jesus in control. This is what Jesus means in verse 40 when He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Maybe, maybe you've read or have a Bible that translates that just slightly differently and uses the word hang. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Firstly, for those that don't know already, that phrase law and prophets is a way of describing the whole Old Testament. All that God spoke for His people before Jesus. All of Scripture, everything God commanded in the past, the word Jesus uses to mean hang, is like the way that a, a picture hangs on a nail on your wall. Or a kid crossing the monkey bars and, and hanging on in utter dependency. If that thing is not there, it falls. If that nail breaks or goes missing, the picture drops. It is a, a, a picture of utter dependence. And Jesus is saying that all God spoke, every commandment, every prophecy, every promise, every instruction, every word depends on these two ideas without which it all falls apart. And those two ideas are closely related. Love God with all you are and love others as He's loved you. That's the point of it all. It's summarized for us in this way in Romans 13. Owe no one anything except owe love to each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. If you were not with us in Sunday school last year when we went through the Ten Commandments, I encourage you, to, to go online at our webpage and, and listen to maybe the first few lessons. Because we again and again came back to the idea that the purpose of all of God's commands is to teach us how to love each other. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not lie. Honor your father and mother. And all the other commandments of Scripture are teaching us how to love each other. That's their purpose. Being a good Christian being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is not measured in church attendance. It's not measured in the number of pages of the Bible that you've read or the number of verses you memorize or the amount of money that you give. It's not measured by your success as a spouse, a parent, an employee. It's not measured by your voting record or your theological knowledge. Everything that God has commanded and called you to do is to direct you towards the goal of loving others and loving Him. If your obedience is not leading you on that path, then you've gone astray. If you are obeying God's commands in a way that is not moving you to deeper and deeper love for the people around you, then you're following it the wrong way. This is, Paul, this is what Paul was getting at in the famous 1 Corinthians 13 passage on love. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. We can be very good at very spiritual things and yet be utterly neglecting what God has called us to do. Think of the mighty preacher. The man who, who knows the Bible so well and boldly proclaims it and defends it and, and knows the doctrines and, and can keep the doctrines in his head and, and knows it all so well and yet does not love his enemy or his brother. Is God pleased with that? Or the woman who shows great spiritual fervor and sincerity, who is deeply moved by the Spirit of God and has seen God do amazing things who speaks passionately about what God is doing and weeps with joy over the work of God and yet does not express that love to others. Paul says that she is a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. What is it that we value as a church? How do we measure obedience and faithfulness? Everything depends on these two things. They are to be the north star that directs you. Why do we obey God's commands? Is it to be better people? Is it to be rewarded? Is it to set us apart and look different from the world? Those may be the consequences, but no, that's not why we're called to do it. We obey God because He said, this is how you love me. I even have people asking me, as a pastor, asking, how can I serve the church? What can I do? What can I do to serve God in this church? And I know that Many people are often asking that, asking that question, and what their real question is, is there some great task I can do? Is there some project or some wonderful ministry that will, that will honor God and, 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 and be of great service to Him? And that's all well and good, but the answer really is this. How can you serve the church? What mighty deed can you do out of love for God? His answer is this, love my people. Love my children. Do that and the church will be okay. The church will be okay if we are loving others. The church will in fact thrive. The bride will be beautiful. Do that. And you are loving God the way He is asked to be loved. In our confession of sin this morning, we together said that we are not sufficient for these things. These things being the commands that God has given us. We're not sufficient. We're not capable of loving God and loving others. We are not sufficient. Even though 1 John 5, we see that by this we know that we love the children of God. Here's how we know we're doing a good job loving others. When we love God and obey God's commands. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Not burdensome. Really. Yes, really. Not burdensome because of the gospel. John goes on to say this in the next verse. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith, our trust, our belief, the truth that we live by is that God has already won the victory. And whatever obstacle or whatever burden it is that would keep us from living the abundant life that God has described for us in His Word. That obstacle has been defeated. It has been removed. It has been overcome 
in Christ. This is the victory that Christ has removed it. And so His commands are not burdensome because His divine power has given us everything we need. His commands are not burdensome because God works in you to will and to work. His commands are not burdensome because He gives us a new spirit that makes us able to obey. His commands are not burdensome because He equips us with everything good for doing His will. And what is His will? That you love Him. And that His love fills you to overflowing. When you grasp the depths, when you grasp the riches, the magnitude of God's love for you in Christ, when you see the Son of God willingly dying in your place, when you understand how thoroughly you are loved, that there's no lack in God's provision and care for you. You are not just inspired to love God and others. You are enabled. You're made able to love God and others because every lack, every obstacle has been removed. That's the gospel we seek to live out together here. That's the good news on which depends all of the law and the prophets and every word of the Lord. That God is leading us into a joyful life of love, making clear the path for us to do so. To Him be the glory for that. Let us prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, a testament of His love for us. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You that though we are not sufficient for these things, You have made us able. You have removed the obstacles of our obedience through Christ. You have told us many, many things. You've given us many, many commands. And though we can get overwhelmed, though we can get distracted, though we can feel insufficient, You have given them all for the purpose of showing us how to love You. And that we do that by loving one another. God, we don't live in a world that is encouraging us to be very loving towards one another. We live in a world that pulls us in the opposite direction. By Your Spirit, would You keep us on task. Make us ever mindful, not only of our duty to love one another, but of the great and joyful privilege it is to love Your people, and in doing so, to testify to the way that You have loved us. We pray this because of Jesus alone. Amen. One thing we didn't dig deeper in just now is the question of how do we know what love is? Yes, we're to love God. Yes, we are to love others. But how do we know what to do? What does love look like? To be honest, focusing on just the commandments and the rules and the steps we need to take. Oh, well, if I say this, I'm not loving. But if I, if I say this, I am loving. If I do this, I'm not loving. But if I do it this way, I am loving. It's like trying to learn by, to dance by remembering where your feet need to go the whole time. What God does is He turns on the music. God has turned on the music. In 1 John 3.16, I call that the other John 3.16. 1 John 3.16, the Apostle writes, By this we know love. This is how we know what love is. That Jesus laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. In order to love the way that we're called to love, we have to understand how God has loved us. 
And so he turns on the music. The music of the Gospel. That Christ laid down His life for us. The more we involve ourselves and dig and immerse ourselves into that great act of love, that great sacrifice, the more we find ourselves able to imitate it. And we find ourselves dancing the dance of loving others without needing to always think about where my feet need to go because I hear the music of God's love for me in Christ Jesus. That's what we remember here. That's what this table is all about. To remember the sacrifice of Jesus, His body, His blood given for us. What more could He have given? And to celebrate. To celebrate that sacrifice with joyful obedience because this is the testimony that God has provided and God will provide. And where God has provided, we have no lack. Where we have no lack, we are free. We are free to love as we are called to love. If, if you don't look upon Jesus that way, if that is not the song that you're dancing to, then this is not for you. And so that this would not be appropriate for you to, to eat this bread and drink from this cup is to, with your actions, confess your trust in Christ. Confess that you have been loved by God and therefore love Him and His people in return. To confess that with your actions when it's not true of your life would not be fair and not be true. And so you let it pass by and consider the music that's playing and the dance that you're called to. But if this is true of you, if you at least confess that it's true of you, but in looking at your life, you realize you are choosing, consciously choosing, not to obey, not to live as God called you to live. You are in rebellion. And, and what this warns us, this is not just a celebration, it's a warning that God punishes sin with death. Either the death of Christ or the death of the sinner. And so I plead with you to choose Christ. To reject sin and choose Christ. This is also a testimony of the unity that we, ha unity that we have as God's people. That He has made us one and called us to love one another. And so if there's anything you are doing, whether it has been that you've sinned against another and not sought to repent, or whether you've withheld gracious forgiveness from one who has hurt you, when I pray in a moment, love others as you have been loved. Let us pray.